Thank you for coming tonight. And thank you for joining us online. My name is Malcolm Duncan. I have the privilege of um, leading this church. And it is a privilege. There are so many things that are going wrong in our world. But that's not new. For centuries, for decades, for years, since time began itself, there have been things going wrong in the world. Sometimes you wonder, can it get any worse? I think it can. Tonight I want to talk to you in the first of two um, evenings, looking at how it will all end. Since the end of the First World War, there have been 260 major conflicts in the world. Since the end of the Second World War, there have been 250. If I was to ask you, starting in the turn of the century, what are the conflicts that have impacted the world. I think many of you would be able to tell me the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century was the Boer War and the Boxer Rebellion. In the 1910s was the First World War and the Irish Civil War, the Irish War of Independence, or the other way around. In the 1930s was the Spanish Civil War and the start of the Second World War, the 1950s, the Korean War, the 1960s, the Vietnam War, and the 1970s, the 19, end of the 1970s and the beginning of the 1980s, the Afghanistan invasion by the USSR, Desert Storm One, the Iraq War, the first Iraq War in 1992, then the second Iraq War, then Afghanistan, then the Syrian War. And around the world tonight, there are 40 major conflicts taking place. Some of them have been going since 1948. The Myanmar or Burma Rebellion, Sub-Saharan Africa, the terrible fighting between Sudan and the newly formed Southern Sudan, the mess that is erupting around Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. There's always conflict, or there has been since the day it began, for the nation of Israel. There's always been somebody trying to destroy that nation, to pull it apart, to wreck it. And here, in recent history, we've seen things like the Arab Spring at the beginning of this decade, nearly 10 years ago. It's remarkable, isn't it? Nearly 10 years ago. The terrible um, fighting that has taken place and disruption and the campaigning in Hong Kong. The issues of migration recent European history, the challenges in Hungary, the challenges of um, European, the, the future of Europe, the politicization of it, the control of it, the Brexit discussions, debates, and that's the only time I'm going to use the word tonight, and we all said, praise the Lord. The challenges in Ireland, the challenge around the United Kingdom, will we be united in six or seven or ten years? What's going to happen? Terrorism. The apparent defeat of the Taliban only for it to rise again. The destruction of Al-Qaeda for it to go away and come back. Violent republicanism and loyalism in Northern Ireland. 
that seems to go away, but is always there under the surface somewhere bubbling and brewing. Never goes that far away, does it? How's it all going to end? Where's it all going to come to a climax? How's it going to stop? Or will it? Some of you will remember um, that back in 2003, if you want the dates, it was the 9th and the 10th of February, Russell T. Davies, the author of the Doctor Who um, series at that time, wrote a, a television series called The Second Coming. Did any of you see it? Christopher Eccleston was in it. It was 16 years ago. So some of you weren't even born. In it, a man called Stephen Baxter, not our Stephen Baxter, came to realize that he was God's son. And that he was asked to, by God to tell people to write a third, that he had to write a third testament. The central theme of the program was that eventually God would willingly die so that humankind could grow up and forget about him and live without him. In this presentation, the end of God is like the death of an interfering old uncle. And his demise finally frees us to live like the adults that we know we really are. Is that how it will all end? When we grow up and grow out of the idea of God? Or will it be different? Over the last six weeks or so on Wednesday nights, I've been running a series here called Afterlife, What Happens When We Die? That's not the end of your story, by the way. You might think it is, but it isn't. That's when your story enters into a state that can never be changed. Christians believe that the world has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I'm not going to talk about all of that tonight because to do so would be to repeat some of the teaching that I've brought on Wednesday nights. I just commend that to you. Other than to say this, here's what we believe. Here's what the Church of Jesus Christ has believed for 2,000 years about the end of your life or the end of the world. That when we die, if we are Christians, we will go to be with him. That where he is, we will be. We believe that those who have died in Christ are now fully conscious, more alive than they have ever been. The end of their story isn't yet done. They will live forever. Free from sin and shame and pain and sorrow and hurt. And they're enjoying the presence of God in a way that we couldn't even begin to understand. We Christians believe that one day the end of our story will be that we will be given new bodies. That we will be given a new existence. That we will live free and fully alive in a way that we couldn't begin to understand. We also believe that at the end of all things, at the end of time, when God ushers in his new and eternal reign, there will be a particular moment, and I'd like to read, it, read to you about it from the Bible. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, for those of you that are following. Verse 13, Paul is talking to a, a church that is um, in Thessalonica, in modern-day Turkey, oblique Greece. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In other words, for Paul, one of the greatest early Christians, here's how it ends. Christians are united with Christ and with his Father forever. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can take us away from his presence. Nothing can take us out of it. We will be with him forever. But maybe that's not enough for us. Maybe that isn't enough of an encouragement. Maybe it's not enough of a a support and a help for us. This idea articulated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Jesus Christ will return to the earth was the heartbeat of early Christianity. It wasn't understood as a metaphor. It wasn't understood as a simile. It wasn't understood as a picture of um, a kind of non-real event. It was what held the church together. They believed that Jesus Christ would return to earth to bring an end to time and history as we know it. And to usher in an existence that we could only dream about. Over 2,000 years of church history, theologians have made that into an allegory. They've described it as a picture of reaching human potential, of solving human conflict. It's been liberalized, metaphorized, and allegorized, turned into stories and tales and ideas, taken away from this fundamental, rooted, grounded reality that the early church believed that Jesus would return, that he would come back to the earth, and that there would be a reunion between those who loved him and those who had loved him and died, and that he would set up a kingdom that would never end. I still believe that. And I think it's more important than ever that we think about it and we reflect on it. Davy has said, Pastor Davy has said twice today, with great excitement and twinkle in his eyes, that it's the first of December. It's the first Sunday in Advent. I'm more excited about it being the first Sunday in Advent than about it being Christmas because it's not Christmas yet. But I'm just as excited about it being Christmas soon. Here's why I'm excited. The early church had what's called, and many churches still do, a liturgical year. And it starts on the first Sunday of Advent. So actually, in a very real sense, do what I can say to you this evening. Happy New Year! Now you're definitely confused, aren't you? And do you know what the first four weeks of the Christian year are supposed to be focused on? Hope, joy, love, peace. Yes, those things. But the early church 
and the church around the world for the next four weeks, if it's doing this calendar thing properly, will focus on the second coming. The church, the church year doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It begins with the fact that he is coming back because we already know that he has come. And for the next four Sundays, across the season of Advent, the early church and churches around the world, and in my own personal devotions, every day for a month, I will reflect uh, between now and Christmas Eve on the reality that Jesus is coming back. That he is coming back to reign, he is coming back to rule, he is coming back to finally eradicate sin from planet earth, he is coming back to fully and finally establish his kingdom, he's coming back to be with his people and nothing and no one will ever separate us from him. And that great hope over the first month of the Christian calendar leads us to the point where we are supposed to get to Christmas Eve and say, we, we, we need to celebrate that he came in the first place, the one who's coming back is coming back. We live on a visited planet. He came once and he will come again. And that liturgical reality holds us in hope. We feel and spend the first month thinking about this as Christians, not because we're wacky or weird, but because we need to remind ourselves that hope is stronger than fear. That the promise of God is stronger than the reality of the world around us. That God will fulfill his promise. And as we reflect over the next few weeks about that, I pray that God will speak into your soul. I'm going to publish something, if I can, every day on social media about Advent and why we can reflect on and get even more excited about Christmas than we already are. So that by the time we get to Christmas Day, we are ecstatic. The first four weeks of the Christian calendar, Advent, were normally spent reflecting on where we'd got things wrong in the previous year. Getting rid of all the stuff that's gotten in the way. Handing God our disappointments and our regrets and our pain and our sorrow and our longings and our questions. Assured of his presence no matter what happens. And at the same time reminding ourselves that our story's not over yet. And when the world around us is attacking us and criticizing and laughing at us if we are Christians, then we remember that God isn't laughing at us. God has made a promise that he will keep. Christianity was born when the Son of Man came to earth. It continued when the Holy Spirit was sent to live in believers. And it will be consummated when the one we address as our Father who art in heaven makes his dwelling place with men and women. In a very real sense, that end is a new beginning when he comes to live with us forever and we go to him. Christ must return. Before all of that, the Son of God will pay a second visit to the earth. Before he does that, there are many more things that need to, be happen, need to happen and be done on earth. Before history can be wound up, there are many disagreements about the second coming. I'm going to preach on it in more detail in the new year. And many of those are healthy and good. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another, the Bible says. 
We must approach the question of the second coming of Jesus Christ with an open Bible and with an open heart and search the word of God. I invite you this week and next Sunday night to think about this with me. How will it all end? You might have strongly different opinions to me. I hope we don't end up falling out over it. The second coming should not be a subject that divides believers. Here's the basic premise of the Bible. That Jesus Christ will personally return to earth and that we must live every day in the light of that great truth. That's called eschatology. Not escapology. That's what Houdini did. And it's what many Christians want to do. The issues are important. The study of the end It's a call to be reminded that our history, the history of the world, the history of the church, has a beginning and a middle and an end. In the light of the promise that Jesus is going to come back, our apathy dissolves. Our minds are focused. Our priorities are reset. And here's what Christians believe, that the future has broken into the present. And we are now part of God's kingdom, a kingdom that is yet to be fully established, but is fully present And is pushing out the darkness. It's a kingdom that will not be defeated. At three o'clock this afternoon, we met with many, a couple of hundred people here. Some of whom have written the names of loved ones or situations they're facing, as Pastor Davey said, and put them on that tree. Loved ones that they've lost who have died. And sometimes we can think we live in a world that is always going to be fractured. By reminding reminding ourselves that Christ has promised that he will return, we realize that that fracture is not permanent. The goodbye is not a permanent one. Are you ready for Christ's return? If he was to return tonight, are you ready? It's an important question. If I was able to tell you the exact date, time, and place of your death, or the end of the world, would you really want to know? I'm not sure I would. But I do think that we are the first generation, perhaps, who could live to see the return of Jesus Christ. Over half of British teenagers today think that the world will end before they die. Many people try to squeeze as much into their lives now as they can for that very reason. In the words of the Bible, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Others have an interest in the future that borders on the obsessive. Anything to avoid the present, ranging from widely optimistic to widely pessimistic. I wonder if I asked you now to take one minute to talk to each other and talk about what you think will be the biggest challenge that the world is going to face, the thing that could wipe us out, 
in the next 100 years, what would it be? Take one minute, 30 seconds talking, if you're in twos, to each other. What one thing do you think could wipe this planet out in the next 100 years? Go on, have a go. Try to talk to each other. It'll not kill you. What? Oh, great. Thank you, Jimmy. See, look, you can stretch this bit up a bit. So I need to go back down a bit then. Down a wee bit. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. So, have you decided? How many of you said the climate? Ooh, put your hands up again. Less than half, despite the fact some of you are putting two hands up. How many of you said some kind of war or um, violence or conflict? What did the rest of you say? That is elevating Brexit to a whole new league. <laughs> Anybody say anything else? Water. A lack of water. Population and not being able to feed each other and not being able to look after to sustain the planet. Poison. If I'd been asking this question in the 1980s, most people would have said a nuclear war. Would you not? If I had been asking it um, in the 1990s, many would have said a germ attack of some description. The apocalyptic kind of sense that something catastrophic could happen exists in every generation in different ways and in different forms. Christians don't actually know what will cause the end of the world, but we do believe that the world will end. And the population around us is obsessed with what's going to happen into the future. Some are superstitious about it. Divination, clairvoyance, mediums, crystal balls, tarot cards, tea leaves, Ouija boards, horoscopes. Every major daily newspaper in the United Kingdom has a horoscope column. 60% of men and 70% of women read them every day and they are less than 1% accurate. They all say the same thing. Then there's scientific method. Calculating present trends and projecting them, called futurology. There are professional chairs established in this discipline all over the country and all over the world now in universities. Industry, commerce and politics have their think tanks trying to work out what's going to happen. More than one computer program has calculated the end of the world will be in 2040. Taking into account current trends in population, food, energy levels and pollution. While short-term, their projections might be good, average and long-term accuracy is terrible. Then there's people that have a mishmash of ideas. We can work it out in some kind of sci-fi way. Some of you might be watching The War of the Worlds on Sunday night, Sunday nights on BBC, written over 100 years ago by H.G. Wells. 
An awful lot of people have a mixture of X-Files, New Ageism and Humanism and construct their own idea of how it's all going to end. And when they do that, you end up with programs like Doctor Who and The Second Coming by Russell T. Davies. But the Bible is quite accurate. The Bible has a lot to say about the future and the events that it will hold. It claims to be the Word of God. And it contains the phrase, thus says the Lord, 3,808 times. According to Isaiah 46, verse 10, God is able to make sense of the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. 25% of the Bible's verses contain some kind of predictive element. And some 737 separate promises and forecasts have been made. Of those 737, around 594, that is 80%, have already come true. Those that have not are all concerned with the end of the world. I would place my bet on a document that has had 100% accuracy, if I were you. If it has been accurate thus far, we need to listen to it again for the future. How astonishing, then, that people do not turn to the Bible to work out the way the world will move forward or end. Maybe it's because it's too controversial. Maybe it's because you don't want to get into an argument. Maybe because you can't spell millennial. But one event stands above every other event that is promised in the Bible. Head and shoulders in the regularity of its mention. And it is the return of Jesus Christ to planet Earth. If he was who he said he was, the Son of Man and the Son of God, then it is only right that an unbelieving world will one day see him vindicated. Everyone. History will be brought to a conclusion by the coming to the earth of a man called Jesus Christ. Not simply by the pressing of a button, but by the breaking of seals spoken of in the books of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 1, and 6, verse 1, which already have the climactic events of this world recorded in them. Jesus himself will appear. The Christian believes that Jesus is the only hope of the future and the only hope of the present. He is the only one with sufficient ability, authority, compassion, and character to right the wrongs of the sick, the sad, and the sinful world in which we live. On his first visit to planet Earth, he showed that he could do it. On his second visit, he has promised that he will. And in case you think, you are weird. This isn't new doctrine. The Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, creator of heavens and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord and Saviour, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried on the third day, and he, and, and he descended to hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead, and he is seated at the right hand of God, from whence he will come. To judge the living and the dead. 
the Nicene Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day he rose again, says the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through all things. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will never end. I would get quite excited about that if I was you. The Athanasian Creed. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it all. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life. And those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. Every Sunday... We remember this when we break bread. Look at the table. What does it say in the front of it? Until he comes. Our theology is rooted in the belief that Jesus Christ will return. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 tells us that unbelievers are without Christ and without hope in the world. If that's you tonight, then you are in that category. We need to talk about this because our hope is in the living, resurrected Christ who will return again. A hope that is described in the Bible as an anchor for our soul that can hold us through any storm and keep us through any trial. Who will return? Where will he return? How will he return? When will he return? Why will he return? We can't answer all those questions tonight. But I'll answer a couple of them. Who will return? If you've ever stood looking at a loved one take off into the sunset, especially on a long trip, you will know how upsetting it can be. We are helped if we know that we will see the person again. Less than two months after he returned from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ went to heaven. Two angels were left to reassure the crowd that had watched him. Here's what they said. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Note what they said. This same Jesus, they used his human name. This man is returning. They emphasized that he would not have changed in the meantime. This same Jesus. The Son of God became a human being called Jesus. 
and his humanity will remain with him forever. The God-man, Jesus, will return to earth. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us he is the only mediator between man and God because he is fully God and fully human. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us he can sympathize and represent us to God because he is God and man. The one who descended is the one who, will, who ascended and will return again. He literally went to the lowest point of the earth in his baptism. And then he went lower again as he announced his victory in Hades after his death. Now he is being exalted to the highest place. Spatially, he has covered it all. And he will return. He was born of a man and he, a woman and he walked amongst us. He was loved, he was hated, and he was ignored. We read of him in the four Gospels. He is a unique personality, loved by sinners, hated by hypocrites, adored by the poor, feared by the powerful. His eyes were filled with tears and blazed with anger. His hands lifted the fallen and whipped the greedy. His tongue could be both soft and sharp. This human Jesus will return. And he will have changed in only one major way. Before leaving the earth, he was given a new resurrection body. This new body has the same disfigurements as the sacred and tortured one did, according to Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. But it is no longer subject to any decay or any disease. When it re he returns, he will return as Jesus. His hair will be snow white, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, and Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, showing that he shares his father's nature as the ancient of days. Before time was, he was. The Son of Man will return in the clouds, according to Mark 14, 62. The embodied Jesus will come to planet Earth again, according to Daniel 3, 25. Not as an apparition, not as a phantom, not as a ghost, but as a person. But the fact that he will return as a man has one huge implication for us. He can only return to one place. Where will he return to? If his return is physical, it has to be local. His spirit can be everywhere, but his body can't. That is why he ascended, that the Holy Spirit, who could be everywhere, could come, according to John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus promised to be with them even to the end. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, the only way he could do that was by sending his spirit. But they were scattered to the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's why his spirit was sent. When Christ returns, believers will um, never have the Holy Spirit taken from them. Rather, they will have his physical presence and his spirit. Every believer will be gathered for his return. Where will they be gathered? Rome? Paris, London, New York, Brussels. No, God has chosen a most unlikely city hidden in the hills of the Middle East. It would have remained an obscure village had God not chosen to attach his name to it. Even today, nations will not attach embassies there until recently. It has known more conflict than any other and may yet prove to be the spark that will light the tinderbox that will set the Middle East ablaze. It was there that Jesus died originally. It was there that he defeated the powers of Satan. 
It was there that he became the first person to have an immortal body. He went to heaven from there, and he will return to there from heaven. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 35, he called it the city of the great king. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39, he told its inhabitants that it would not see him again until they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting a psalm. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, it is described as the great city. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, as the city that he loves, the city will become an international center for arbitration and disarmament, according to Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4. Of course, it is Jerusalem. You may or may not know that Jerusalem is literally at the center of the world's landmass and is a meeting point of three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. It's an ideal rendezvous for the followers of Jesus Christ to meet. But where will everyone go? The crowd will be every believer that has ever breathed. The Bible tells us that his return will take place outside the city. The Mount of Olives is a peak to the east with a panoramic view of the whole city on one side and the wilderness down to the Dead Sea on the other. Here, thousands of pilgrims came for the three annual Jewish feasts to camp. It was here that people welcomed Jesus with olive branches in Mark chapter 11 when he rode into Jerusalem for the penultimate time. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 predicted that event and also said that this in 14 verse 4, chapter 14 verse 4, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. But even the mountain cannot hold that number. But the Bible says that this will take place above the mountain. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us that we will meet him in the air. By then we will have received new bodies. According to 1 Corinthians 15.51-53, just like his glorious body. His body was equally at home on earth and heaven. He could eat fish, cook breakfast and pass through locked doors. I do not know about you, but fewer pictures in the entire New Testament give me a clearer picture of his glory than this one. The glorious sight of the saints and their God, united forever, never to be separated again. Who will return? We know. How will, where will he return? What about how will he return? His second coming will be like his first going. Like a camcorder in reverse of the ascension it will be visible audible and tangible Matthew 25 verse 31 tells us that thousands of angels will accompany his return millions of people will see him God will speak the archangel will shout and the trumpet will sound and I do not think that the millions who are watching will remain silent as they see him for the first time. Do you? Do you think when Christ returns, Christians will say, oh. <laughs> it worries me that we are not inspired by this promise. That we are not set ablaze with hope and possibility at the promises of God to his people. Matthew 24 says that lightning from the eastern horizon will flash to the west, 
Christ will not return in weakness. He will return in power. He will not return in humility. He will return in glory. He will not return in meekness. He will return in majesty. There will be an, a universal awareness and an instant recognition. Everyone will know that he has come and everyone will know who he is. It will be the most public and the most publicized event in history. The New Testament writers searched for words to describe what this meant. And they came up with three. The parousia. It means to be beside or to arrive to those who expect you. It was used of a king arriving with his army at the border of the land that they were about to conquer. It's also used of a king in his court arriving at a special city and being welcomed with honors. Unbelievers will see him as an alien invader. Believers, believers will see him as the returning king, the rightful reign. The second word that they used was epiphania. It means appearing on the scene. It points to a sudden coming, not a gradual one. Like the royal family appearing on Buckingham Palace balcony. Let's move on from that quickly. It's this word that is used of God appearing in worship through the glory. And it's associated with bringing comfort and support at a critical time of need. Like the cavalry riding in in a western movie. The third Greek word is apocalypsis. And it means arriving or appearing or revealing. It means to be shown for who you truly are. To be revealed. A great reveal. Matthew 24 verse 30 tells us that this is how Christ will return. Jesus will return suddenly, physically, visibly, audibly and tangibly. And here's what the Bible says. Luke chapter 12 Verse 40, you must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at a time when you do not expect him. I will look at when he will return and why he will return next week. But are you ready? Are you ready? I want to ask Christians something and then I want to ask people who are not yet Christians something. Those of you that are Christians, how important is this promise to you? How life-giving is it? When was the last time you were excited about the promise of Christ's return? Do you think about it? Do you allow it to shape your decisions, your priorities? Or have we become so comfortable in our culture that actually we'd rather not talk about this? What will fix the world other than this? If you are a follower of Jesus, what is going to transform this broken system, this fractured world, other than the return of Jesus Christ? 
All of our actions and our activity, we work for a better word, we serve for a better word, we evangelize for a better word, we serve the poor, we feed the hungry, we care for the broken and the homeless, we do all of that and we should continue to do it. But you do realize, don't you, that that is not enough. That we can't do this on our own. The world can't be fixed by human endeavor. You realize that or not? I wonder. Sometimes I think we have convinced ourselves that with a bit of clever chicanery and good education and thinking and investment and great creative ideas, we will change the world and we can fix it. We can't fix this. There's only one person who can fix it. But he will fix it. He will put every wrong right. He will answer every question. Sometimes as a pastor, you have people asking you questions that you can't answer, very often in my case. But one of the classics is, how could God allow somebody like Hitler to get away with what he did? The biblical answer is, he won't get away with it. God saw and held him to account. But very often the same people will then say, but how could God punish people? Well, which is it? Do you want them to put everything right? Or do you want them to forget about everything? You can't have it both ways. But we Christians believe this. God will put everything right. That injustice done to you. That mistake, that terrible um, crime, that awful thing that you went through. God saw it. And we live before the end, but the end will put it all right. This afternoon, I was talking to a dear woman whose husband died when he was a very young man. And she told me that she kept asking God questions still years later. And I said, I know how that feels because I do that. And I said, here's what I think God has told me. One day I will answer every question you have. And on the day that I answer the questions, the questions won't matter. And you have to make a decision about whether or not you're going to live with that. Be careful, sister and brother, that you are not too comfortable in our world. Remember, Christ is returning. And that we are to live in the light of his return. Nearly every song we sing talks about it. And it's the bit of the song that we get really excited about. When you return on eternity's shore and death is defeated. And um, when, what is it? Sin is defeated and death is no more. We'll enter in as the wedding bells sing. And we get excited about that bit. And yet in our daily lives, do we get excited about this? I'm excited about Christ's return. Now, what about you that are not yet Christians or have lost your way as Christians? This is a date that you will not avoid. If you are alive, this will impact you. If you have died, this will impact you. You cannot avoid this. And the Bible says something which is challenging and profoundly important. And I'm glad I'm talking about it tonight on the very first Sunday of Advent. 
you will bow before God. Every human being will. You will either bow before him from choice or you will bow before him in judgment. And I have no control over that. So what will it be? You must make that decision. I was converted as a teenager. It's been so long since I was a teenager, I can't remember. But when I was converted, I was surrounded by people who preached and talked about Jesus coming back. And I was really interested. Anybody else in their 50s or 40s? And that was the case for you? It was interesting. It was challenging. It was inspiring. It was moving. I'd love to know, not now because it's a public gathering, what you think about this. Do you think about it? Do you talk about it? Do you guys explore it in 412 and inspire one another to remember that Christ is returning? And what about those of us who have lost our way a little? What if on the first Sunday of this new year, as we reflect on Christ returning, you get the chance to put that right? To say, actually, this is so important. I want to sort this out. I want to bow before God and worship, not in fear. I want to kneel in front of the returned king as his subject, not as his enemy. You will be one of those two things. How do you become his subject? By accepting what he has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. By asking for his mercy and kneeling before him. How do you become his enemy? By doing nothing. By rejecting his love. By rejecting his grace. And by rejecting his mercy. Last time I preached a proper full series on the second coming was several years ago. And on the last night of that series, I said something that I'm about to say now. And I said, you know, none of us have any awareness of the span of our lives. There was a fellow came up to me at the end of the meeting and he said, you're trying to frighten me into becoming a Christian. I said, I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Well, you're talking a load of nonsense and I'm not listening to it. He dropped dead that night. I have no awareness of the frame of your life. But I plead with you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you have just listened to me preaching too long and thought, this is so boring. Don't blame Jesus for my boring preaching. But leave this meeting with a sense of excitement that Christ will return. Let it inspire you again. Let it motivate you again. Let it move you again. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to plead with you, online or in this room, don't leave this building. Don't turn off your computer without getting right with God.
Let's pray. This same Jesus will return. You will look him in the face. I have two questions tonight for every person here and online. Please continue to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed out of respect for each other. Is there anyone here and you have lost your way as a Christian? Tonight, you realize that you need to fix that. You want to be made right with God. Money, career, power, relationships, influence, popularity, your phone, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. They've become more important than Jesus. And your life needs to be put right. If you would like to be put right with God, if you'd like to have your relationship with him restored, then where you are when no one else is looking, just put your hand up and take it down again, please. I will see it, thank you, and I will pray for you. This is no one else's business. Is there anyone else here? Thank you. My second question is to everyone here. If you need to nail your colors to the mast, if you need to say, I need to get right with God, I need his grace and his mercy, I want to start my Christian life and you've never been a Christian. And tonight you want to become a follower of Jesus. Then where you are, just put your hand up, please. I will see it and I will be praying for you this week and in the weeks that lie ahead. I'm not going to embarrass you. Are you ready to meet Christ? If not, put this right tonight. You don't need to put your hand up twice. I've seen the hands that have been raised. Thank you. 
If you're watching online and you've responded to either of these prayers, these invitations, please could you contact my colleague, pip at dundonaldelam.church and he will be able to help you with information. I thank you for every response that has been made here tonight, Lord. For those that have returned to you and for those that have come to you for the first time. And I pray that you will give them confidence and courage and faith and grace. I pray that they will know your presence and your power in their lives. And I pray that your people would be inspired by the promise of your returning King, our Lord Jesus. And that we would live in the light of his return. Thank you that he is coming back. Thank you that all things will be put right. Thank you for the hope of Christ's reign and rule across the universe. In Jesus' name, amen.